0: to start this morning in Matthew 5, at the very beginning of this section, which we've spent now 11 weeks studying, Um, I want to read from verse 17, so hold up your Bible when you're there, awesome, awesome, awesome. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, by way of review, you need to know if you're a Christian that the law has not been abolished for you. You are being called to fulfill the law. The law is still relevant to you. In fact, probably more relevant to you than to anyone who has ever attempted to follow it without Christ because you've been given the tools and the equipment to do the law and to teach the law? God's people are called to so do and teach the law that their good works will actually fulfill the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So that's possible because you are, if you're in Christ, a citizen of a new kingdom and the benefactor of a new covenant, which means you have a new heart. Your new heart is equipped to do the law in, in a way that no one can do the law. In fact, our righteous works, as we are molded into the image of Christ, will be perfect, or complete, or or whole, as the Father is perfect. That's the call. And that's the call that Christ is, is, is issuing to you and to me. If we are in Christ, we have received the call to do righteous works in such a way that, that we will be perfect, and as the Father is perfect. And if, you, if that troubles you, um, uh, it, it's not a bad idea to go back and listen to last week's sermon. It doesn't mean moral, spotless Righteousness in this sense, it means completely or fully or maturely doing the righteous works we're called to do in in the law, okay? And what does that look like? What does that perfection look like? Well, according to Jesus, that perfection looks like loving bad people. You shall love your enemies. The people who do you wrong are going to be recipients of your lavish love and your righteous good works. That is the fulfillment of the law. And that is the call of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, And we finished there last week. But we got a whole lot of work to do to answer the question how. Before we do that, I want to talk just briefly about Jesus. Jesus Himself, and we're going to see this played out all through His ministry... It's not just in this book, it's in all the Gospels, and it's referenced throughout the New Testament. Jesus treasured bad people. He treasured His enemies so much that He longed and labored for their good and for their holiness and for their happiness. What did this look like? Well, it looked like a lot of things, but, but it looked like cheering the table of back alley thieves. Tax collectors were the worst people. They had their own culture of badness. They robbed, they extorted, all to continue to further the oppression of God's people. These are back alley thieves, and these are the people Christ sat down and broke bread with. Now I want to ask you a question, was he pinching his nose? I mean, reflect on it for a moment. Do you think that Jesus was... just enduring his time? Or was he actually treasuring and longing and laboring and perhaps even enjoying? Let me ask you another question. Do you get called a glutton and a drunk by your enemies if you are a stoic at the table of bad people? No, I don't think so. In other words... Jesus didn't just bring teaching. He didn't just bring bread. didn't just bring wine. He brought joy to the table of bad people. That's the kind of king we serve. He wiped away the tears of prostitutes. People who were unclean felt comfortable in His presence. And He issued a call to forgive them. And a call to walk with them, and He comforted them with with the comfort of redemption. This is the kind of king we serve. He loved bad people. And perhaps the clearest display of that love, He pled for the forgiveness of hypocrites even while they nailed Him to a cross. That is loving bad people in action. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine? Jesus loved bad people. And He's calling us to do the same. He's calling us to do the same. So we're here this morning to to ask the question, how? How, So if, if good works fueled by merciful love are the fulfillment of the law. And that's been the claim, right? We have this picture of purity, this picture of integrity, this picture of peace. All of of the call of the law culminates in in this demonstration of love towards your enemies, right? If that's what we're called to do, how do we do it? And if if love is not merely doing it, but actually treasuring people and actually longing for their good, not merely laboring, but longing, how do do you do that? If these people are truly bad people, how do you you love them? You're not merely called to do well, you are called to love well. That sounds and seems impossible. So how do we do it? I think the answer is walking with God. Okay, I'm going to give you a fuller answer to this question. We're going to look at a bunch of texts, but the answer to this question is walking with God. God is love, right? God loves better than anybody has ever loved. All of the love, the good love, the, the, the enemy treasuring love that ever has been has been derived from. God. So the way you get to loving people who are bad people, the way you get to loving people who are persecuting you, is to spend time with Him. All right, that's my answer to the question. Walk with God. And I want to talk about what that looks like. How do we walk with God? Well, well I think the passages we're going to read this morning are going to suggest that we hope in the Father's promise and power That we remember the Son's mercy and mission and that we pursue the Spirit's fellowship and fruits. Now, I've been hearing you guys and you say I have too many slides and it's hard to keep up and write down. So if you look in your sermon guide, there's actually an outline this time. So, uh, but there's typos. Give me a break. A little bit of a break. Okay. Hope in the Father's promise and power. Remember the Son's mercy and mission and pursue the Spirit's fellowship and fruit. All right, let's start with hoping in the Father's promise and power. I'm I'm getting this from two passages. Uh, The first one, I'm so grateful for Brett. He highlighted this for me, and it was a really beautiful moment for me. Um, Actually, we don't have to go too terribly far here. Just turn the page um, to Matthew 7. We're going to look at Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, now that's usually where we stop when we're reading this section. But I want you to go one one more verse. One more verse. Founded upon that miraculous and majestic invitation... Founded upon that unbelievable invitation, the God who is capable of anything, the God who is all-powerful, is inviting you to ask and He'll give. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. That's, that's the foundation of this next sentence. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Merciful love. Right, Christ circles back on this concept of loving people well, right? Loving people fully and comprehensively, and this is even a seems like a step further. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So, so this dramatic call to love, to mercifully love others. Right, this this reformulation of the notion, love your neighbor as yourself right? You're thinking of their good, right? You're longing for their good. You're doing their good. And, and I think you're also treasuring them, right? It's all wrapped up in this concept of doing to others. Do you want others to treasure you and long and labor for your good? Yes. Yes. Well, th- that dramatic and impossible love that's extended without restraint. There's no boundaries here. Right? There's no boundaries around to an extent due to others as you would have. Or until you're tired due to others. until. No. There's no boundaries. This is, this is dramatic love without restraint. And it's founded upon this invitation to ask. Because God is ready to give it to you. God is ready to give you love for your enemy. Alright? That's the first step. Recognizing that this is not something you can white-knuckle. Recognizing that you can't just like will yourself to, to dramatically care for others, to treasure their good in Christ. You can't will yourself to do it. Recognizing that and also seeing God's invitation to to ask and seek because he'll answer and you'll find that's the first step that's that's the promise of the father the promise of the father is if you want to love people you come to me and you ask me for that love and i'll give it to you all right all right and i want to add to this with a, with a, a passage in ephesians 3 all right ephesians 3 We're going to be jumping all over. and I didn't put the full text in the slides, and so I'd like for you to turn there. Ephesians 3. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, general electric power company is what I was taught. In general, like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, that was for free. You're welcome. You won't be able to forget it. 3, verse 20. I think we read this all the time. I think we think about it all the time because it's encouraging in itself, but I want to put it in context. 3 verse 20. This is Paul praising God. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Now, praise God. Generally, that's true. Generally, God is able to do. In, in every case, God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. But, but don't let this just live in this like unanchored you know, doctrine of prayer. Right? He's actually referring to something he has just asked for. Right? So I want to read that. Starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to His riches of glory He may grant you... Okay, here it is. Here's what He's asked for. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the ask. That's the ask. The Father is able to do far more than that request, which was, by the way, to be rooted and grounded in love, to know the love of Christ, and to be filled with the fullness of God. That's the request that Paul refers to when he says, and the Father is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Amen? So we have in Matthew a promise that if you want to love people, all you need to do is ask God and seek God and knock and the door will be opened to you. And, and, and supplementing that is this dramatically brilliant expression that, that Paul has this wild imagination for the church. This, this unhinged imagination for the church that they'd be rooted and grounded in love, that they would know the fullness of the love of Christ And they would be filled with the fullness of God. And then He says, and and the Father's able to do far more than we ask. So, So if from this moment, there's even the slightest hesitancy that God is wanting to and able to give you a heart full of love for bad people, let this resolve that hesitancy. Right? He is ready and he's inviting you. And while you're asking, you just need to remember, he's able. He's able to do it. Okay. I need to calm down. I need to calm down. I just did the thing that Brett does sometimes. It's when you, when you squish your, your shoulders together and you point out like this. This is just actually because we've been watching Piper for like 20 years. Because he's like this, and he's like, you know. Okay, so that's the sign that I'm getting a little worked up. Okay. So, so trust in the Father, hope in his power and his promise. Okay. All right, next, remember the son's mercy and mission. Remember the son's mercy and mission. All right. I want to look at John 13. John 13. This is a beautiful passage. I'm indebted, by the way, to about four different articles on a number of different websites. I'm going to drop those into the realm. Um, so many helpful articles connecting dozens of disparate texts to this notion of how to love people that you feel uncomfortable with. And I will, I will drop those in here. Um, but John 13, we're going we're gonna to read from verse 1. knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. Okay. It's the knowing. Of course he knew, right? Of course he knew. But, but John calls out what is going on in Christ's mind right now at the moment where he is in, expressing dramatic humility and love. John calls out what's going on in his mind. He knew. He knew it. He knew that his friend was about to betray him to torture and humiliation and brutal death. He knew it. His hour was coming. He he tells His disciples, the guy who's sharing bread with me. And then He says, Judas, go. Do what what you have planned to do. He knew. He knew that His friend, who had walked with Him for years, by the way, who had seen Him serve and love and heal and raise from the dead and give bread to the thousands, right? His friend would betray him to torture, humiliation, and brutal death. And he knew that that he deserved from Judas nothing short of worship, right? Knowing that he had come from the Father and that he was about to go through the Father, this is the son reflecting on his glory and reflecting on his friend's betrayal and what does he decide to do? He takes off his outer garment, he ties a towel around his waist, and he gets a bucket of water and he washes Judas's feet, his enemy. He knelt down and he washed his feet. Now that may seem like a dramatic episode, but you're that guy. We are not supposed to see Judas and think, oh, there are really sometimes bad people in the world. We are that guy. Read Romans 1. You betrayed all of his kindness. He's been giving you gift after gift after gift after gift. And you twisted his gifts. And you refused Him honor and thanks. You're that guy. And yet, He bore your sins and He washed you clean. He washed you clean. That is merciful love. That is merciful love. That's the sort of love you've been given. So go love like that. So go love like that. You are not called to less dramatic displays of love than Christ was. Christ was our example. He was the author and finisher of what? Our faith. Right? So if we're following in His footsteps, if we're imitating Him, it's going to look like this sort of dramatic display. Okay. I want to... Jump ahead to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read from 18. And then we're going to jump back. we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Okay. Now that's beautiful. Because that embodies what we just talked about. Having been reconciled, Christ laying down His life on behalf of of sinners like us is the template. That's the model. Our model to love others is Christ's model which which was cast upon His disciples. He's... He's actually impressing upon His people merciful love by, by, by serving them and, and dying for them and, and, and redeeming them. All right, That's the model. But here we have explicitly that having been recipients of reconciliation, we have been reconciled to God. God, who was our enemy because of our sin, has become our Father. Right? We have been adopted into into God's family. We are reconciled, so radically reconciled that we went from being a beggar to being an inherit, having an inheritance of the kingdom. All right? Co-heirs with Christ. So we have been reconciled, and that's not where it stops. He says, now that you've been reconciled, you go, you go issue the message of reconciliation. You're like an ambassador. The King Jesus is sitting on His throne, and He's saying, go, Go to my people. Go to the world and broadcast the message of reconciliation. Now that's cool, but actually if you go back one paragraph, we're going to see what this looks like. How does this, what does this look like on the ground? All right. So I want you to jump back to um, verse 14. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who's who for their sake died and was raised all right I want to get into this language for a moment. The love of Christ controls us. What does that mean? It's not like a, like a controller for like an Xbox. That's not, it's not the right interpretation of this language. Um, perhaps a better translation is, is presses us or pushes us or constrains us. In fact, that was the most popular reading for a long time. Constrains us. It's not that we are being controlled like robots, right? It's, it's that we have now a single controlling influence, a single notion that drives our actions and our love and our behavior and our relationships. The thing that occupies our minds and, and drives us to action is that we have died with Christ. Therefore, our life is not to terminate on ourselves any longer. We do not live for ourselves, but for Him who, who for their sake died and was raised. Our King has died our death so that we can live forever, but that life doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong. That's not yours anymore. It's been purchased with the blood of Jesus. You are His, and He has sent you to go get His people. He has sent you to go get His people. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So the sin-forgiving new creation ministry. I love what he calls out in this paragraph. Listen, he says, "...from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer." Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him. He's just now found three different ways to say your sins are gone. The old has passed away. You are a new creation in Christ. And that's the message. That's the message of reconciliation. We're going to people who are bad people, who have have a whole life history of sin, and we're saying, all that you're ashamed of has been bought by the blood of Christ. Now trust in Him, and you will be made a new creation, and you'll be reconciled to God. And then let's go get more together. That's the mission. It's been the mission from the outset, and sometimes we forget about it. But that sin forgiving new creation ministry of Jesus your King has been handed to you. And I think in tandem with remembering God's promise to give what we ask and his power to do it, I think in tandem to that, if we're reflecting on the mercy of God poured out on us, and if we're reflecting on our mission to bring that message of reconciliation to the world we're going to find that the treasuring of people for their good just starts to go. Just starts to go. May we weep when we see the guy on the corner. Right? May we long for His good and may we labor for it. Okay. Alright, so that's reflecting on the work of Christ, celebrating the mercy and mission of Christ. And finally... Pursue the Spirit's fellowship and fruit. Pursue the Spirit's fellowship and fruit. Now listen, I know it's going to make you uncomfortable to talk about it. Talking about the Spirit's fellowship, talking about walking, being led by the Spirit, sometimes gives you the itchy crawlies. Seen it abused in many contexts. Listen, the abuse of others is not a good reason to ignore one of the three persons of God. Okay, so we need to take seriously the call of Scripture, and that's what—that's what's going to lead to love. Right? I think this is the most explicit connection in the entire New Testament: how to love. You want to know how to love? We could have just had a whole sermon on the fruit of the Spirit is love. All right? When the spirits there, the tree makes love. All right? I think. Get ahead of myself galatians 5 turn to galatians 5 just next book 14 through 26 paul doesn't even waste any time here he just dives into love all right For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The inverse of the Sermon on the Mount. The inverse of the Sermon on the Mount. is just detailed for you. What does it look like to do the opposite of what Christ is calling you to do? That's the list. And by the way, that's what your flesh is wanting every morning. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control... Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So you see what he's doing, right? Throughout these two paragraphs, he's just like turning his attention to the flesh. He's turning his attention to the Spirit. He's turning his attention to the works of the flesh. And he's turning his attention to the fruit of the Spirit. And he's saying... Choose. Right? Choose. If if you go one way, you're going to bear good fruit. But if you go another way, you're going to bear the work of the flesh. Right? And they're waging war. You can't have both at the same time. They're waging war. You are always either loving or hating. I have just summarized the works of the flesh as hating. I think Titus says the same thing. He says, we were... Hating and being hated. That's the flesh life. That's the flesh life. You're either loving or hating. The spirit life is love. Flesh life is hatred. But you're always going to be following one or the other. Alright? Hatred is the way of the flesh. Love is the way of the Spirit. But you wage war against the flesh when you walk with the Spirit. When you walk with the Spirit, you wage war war against the flesh. And do you know that he gives us a way to know whether we're doing it? Right? Flesh evidence, spirit evidence. You know, if you take 10 minutes, we're going to talk about this in the application, if you take 10 minutes at the end of every day and you reflect on the decisions you made and, and the words that, you uttered, and and the thoughts that occupied your mind, you're going to know whether you chose this day to follow the Spirit or to follow the flesh. Okay? All right, now, I want to join this passage with one more. This is the next book, just a few pages down. Ephesians 5, verse 18... Filled with the Spirit. This is a fascinating passage. Because at first blush, being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit seem like categorically different things. Categorically different things. Why connect? Don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What What is operating behind the scenes here? I'm going to ask you a stupid question. How do you get drunk? You drink a lot. You drink a lot <laughs> of alcohol. That's how you get drunk. And I think this, this spectrum, if you want to call it that, is a picture of how we choose to walk with God or walk according to our flesh. Right? I think Paul chooses this drunkenness analogy to illustrate to the people in this church that, that you can walk with God richly so that, so that the Spirit's saturation changes the way you think and walk and talk because that's what happens on the other end. Right? Right? So what happens. We've all seen somebody who's drank too much. They can't process things well. It changes the way they think. It changes the way they talk. It changes the way they relate to people. Drunkenness is an analogy of walking with God in part because when we choose to pursue the Lord, when, he, when we choose to, to drink deeply, as Paul seems to suggest in 1 Corinthians, as we choose to to run to Christ and from our hearts flows rivers of living water, our relationships and our words and our actions change fundamentally. Or, stated another way, why do people get drunk? Because life is hard, man and and if i can do anything to keep my head above the clouds i will right because it's like a, a, a it's like it's like a fake joy that you can you can sip right and all of a sudden for a little while you forget your problems and the sorrows of the moment fade right likewise You walk so closely and intimately with the Lord your God and these momentary momentary afflictions will seem like nothing against the weight of glory being prepared for you. You will have such stirred hope in the kingdom. Such joy in your salvation. Such peace from the Gospel that, that these momentary afflictions will seem like a a slight distraction now that is not to say that there are not seasons of sorrow in the life of a believer but throughout the Psalter we have faithful brothers and sisters writing in a season of darkness and causing their souls to remember the goodness of God right, that's what the Spirit does that's what the Spirit does I am going to send you an article written in 1982 by uh, by John Piper to his church after he's preached a, a message on this sermon. It's called "How to Be Filled with the Spirit." Now, now, if you Google "How to Be Filled with the Spirit," you're going to find a whole lot of garbage. All right. So, if you want to do some like uh, good reading, read this article. And there's there's a whole handful of of good books and articles we can give you. Uh, let me just go ahead and call them out Not right now. J.I. Packer's walk and step with the Spirit is excellent. And also D.A. Carson's uh, exegesis of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is I think called showing the Spirit. Is that right? Okay. I'm always looking at Brett to ask, to answer questions that I've never prepared him for. Um, so, how to walk with the Spirit. Now, I want to clarify something here. This passage says, be filled with the Spirit. And then you see uh, a whole list of behaviors. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might read this and think, okay, Paul's saying, be filled with the Spirit, and this is how. I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. I think this is a list of things that happen when you're filled with the Spirit. And and it actually is kind of similar to the things that happen on some level when you're filled with wine. Um, uh, If you're a student of the Reformation, you know this. If not, there are some funny moments in the history of our faith. Um, A guy named Martin Luther, who, by the way, said his wife made the best beer in the region. This is funny. Um, Martin Luther uh, came seemingly in a moment uh, to, to an awareness of the true gospel, right? And he became its chief advocate in Europe at the time. And, um, and then he, you know, in his joy, wrote a lot of songs. Um, and he stole the melodies to drinking songs in Germany, um, which is really funny. But uh, if, if we ever again, and I'm sure we will because it's on our rotation, sing A Mighty Fortress, I want you to envision a bunch of Germans with, with, with uh, uh, goblets of ale. The mighty fortress is... See what I mean? All right. That's rabbit trail. It's Probably self-destructive on some level. But when we are filled, I almost said drunk with the Spirit, but I think that's taking the analogy too far, If we're filled with the Spirit, we will sing songs and and encourage one another in psalms and spiritual songs. We will not be able to get away from the gospel. What does the Spirit do primarily? He ushers our praise for Christ, He, He directs our eyes to Christ's work, right? So, if that's the case, how do you be filled? How do you be filled? Well, that's a longer uh, answer than we have time for. But, basically, seek God. Seek God. You want to be filled with the Spirit of God, rush to the Scriptures. Dwell in them. And, and, And let the Scriptures fuel your prayers. Spend time meditating on the work of God to redeem His people as as that plays out in the Scriptures, and then let the Scriptures teach you how to praise and teach you how to pray. The long answer to this is, is what we've been talking about in the How to Grow class. The disciplines of our faith are just a means to walking in the fullness of the Spirit. But, I put this slide here um, because I think it's one of the simplest messages throughout Scripture, and for me, it's one of the most encouraging messages throughout Scripture. Across the board, from Genesis to Revelation, you find perpetual invitations to seek me, and you will find me. Seek God. Psalm 910. Delivered me from years of despair. Psalm 910. The Lord does not forsake those who seek Him. If you ever come to me and you say, I'm a sinner, and and even though I've expressed faith in Jesus, I keep sinning, how do I know that I'm still a believer? (laughs) My answer is going to be, seek God. Seek God. He doesn't doesn't forsake those who seek Him. Or I love the message in Acts because, because Paul says, you've been put where you've been put. In the nation where you are. So that you might reach out. Blind, grasping for Him. And He could have stopped there, but He didn't. He said, for He is not far from any of us. If it wasn't clear enough in Matthew 5, let it be clear now, if you seek the fullness of the Spirit, you will find the fullness of the Spirit. And if you don't find it, you're probably not seeking ardently. Okay, all right. So that's the passages I wanted to look at. Let me give you just a little bit of real practical advice very quickly. First, ask God to give you love every morning, afternoon, and evening. Now, that makes people uncomfortable in our circles because we don't really do liturgy throughout the week, only on Sundays. Um, I would encourage you to grab books like the Book of Common Prayer or uh, lately uh, a book that I've found helpful is called uh, Every Moment Holy. And it will sort of get you thinking about what a, a, a prayer life would look like punctuating your moments. Alright? And af- after you ask, trust Him in word and deed. What does that look like? It, thank Him. Thank Him for hearing you and for promising to give it and then do it. That's how you, that's how you trust Him. Do the work of loving. Okay. Next, reflect on Christ's mercy on you particularly. Stop what you're doing. Turn off your phone. Sit somewhere quiet and think about what He has done for you. It will fuel your affection for others. Okay? I don't think it's a bad idea to set aside a moment every morning to remember your mission. Remember your mission. And then, that moment needs to be, uh, needs to be an anchor that guides how you act towards others for the rest of the day. Okay. This is a hard one. I have already encouraged you to do this. Audit your works and evaluate your fruit every evening. Every evening, stop after the kids are asleep or after the dust settles on your day and spend 10 minutes thinking about your behavior and ask yourself whether you've been walking and being led by the Spirit or whether you're being led by your flesh. And then finally, seek God with urgency. Seek God with urgency. Read, pray, fast, meditate, and wait on God. And He will give it. Amen? Amen. Let's celebrate His gifts.